Welcome everyone to Too Good To Be True. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Today there is content that is not appropriate for younger people unless accompanied by an adult. The subject of today's show is serial killers, Jack the Ripper, and H.H. Holmes. Before we start getting into details, let's just briefly talk about the psychic insight and how we apply it. We choose a subject, then research the background, and based on that research, we determine what we think needs to be explained by creating a series of questions. Then Justina provides psychic insight to answer those questions. The psychic insight is narrated towards the end of the show. Accepting a psychic insight is a question of individual belief. Now let's go through the disclaimers. Here are the disclaimers. Neither of us claim to have any expertise in any subjects that we discuss. We relate information we find through research and the psychic insight. We are always delighted to hear from the listeners. The show only lasts an hour. We don't have the time to present exhaustive research on any topic. This means that there will be information that we miss. We want to provide a basis for the psychic insight. We don't care if a theory turns out too good to be true, as the show name suggests. We're only interested in finding out more of the truth about topics. Spirit can only relate insight that is appropriate for our time in history. Free will cannot be affected. Only comments that are appropriate for our time can be given through the psychic insight. Much of the subject matter in shows may have already been covered many times in other media. We want to look into subjects in a new, different way and be thought-provoking. We are not so good with pronouncing names. We apologize. And neither of us have any particular knowledge of serial killers or the psychology of serial killers. If we have misstated anything, we apologize. Serial killers, that's the sort of subject you like. The subject is a listener suggestion for H.H. Holmes. But first, we are going to discuss Jack the Ripper. So a shout out goes to the listener for the suggestion of a serial killer. As a starting point, I think we need a definition of a serial killer. Here's a quote from Wikipedia. Quote, a serial killer, killer is typically a person who murders three or more people, usually in service of abnormal psychological gratification, with the murders taking place over more than a month and including a significant period of time between them. Different authorities apply different criteria when designating serial killers. While most set a threshold of three murders, others extend it to four or lessen it to two. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, for example, defines serial killing as a series of two or more murders committed as separate events, usually but not always by one offender acting alone, unquote. For Jack the Ripper, we mustn't forget this is just a nickname for an unknown killer. His identity remains unknown to this day. The name Jack the Ripper came from a letter sent to the police at Scotland Yard in London, known as the Dear Boss Letter. The letter taunting the police was signed by Jack the Ripper. The letter was postmarked September 27, 1888. In modern analysis, the letter was written by someone with good writing skills. The original letter disappeared from police files to, re to be returned anonymously to the Metropolitan Police about a century later in, in 1987, and then analyzed. But there was more than one letter sent to the police. There were hundreds, but the Dear Boss letter was distributed in flyers in case anyone recognized the handwriting. Newspapers published text from the letter, which created incredible um, publicity. The letter was written in red ink and had the spelling and, uh, and had spelling and punctuation errors. It mentioned clipping the ears off a future victim. Later on, September the 30th of 1888, the body of victim Catherine Eddowes was found with one 
earlobe missing. Not all the letters were addressed to the police. Who else received a letter? George Lusk, president of the White Chapel Vigilance Committee. He received a letter entitled From Hell, claiming that the, that the kidney that accompanied the letter in the box was from a victim. The corpse of murder victim Catherine Eddowes, from which the kidney had been removed, had Bright's disease. The kidney showed the same stage of Bright disease, which is acute or chronic nephritis, and was almost certainly from the victim. Were other significant letters received? One more, actually a postcard, is believed to be authentic. Copies were made public by the police. The saucy Jackie postcard, which was received on October the 1st, 1888, at the Central News Agency, referred to the Dear Boss letter and two murders from the previous night. The handwriting was similar to that of the Dear Boss letter. When did the series of murders commence? The first report of a murder attributed to Jack the Ripper was on August the 31st of 1888, with the body of Mary Ann Nichols being found at 3.40 in the morning, lying in a white chapel back street. Her throat being cut and her body had been horribly mutilated. Whitechapel was a very poor district in the east end of London. So it was basically an area of slums. Yes, Dorset Street in Whitechapel was known as the worst street in London. The police would avoid the area as it was so dangerous. They would go only go there in pairs. At the time, there was no street lighting, lighting and pedestrians were populating the streets day and night. What was known of the first victim, Mary Ann Nichols? Marianne Nichols, who was, 30, so was 43 years old, was married and the mother of five children. She was a heavy drinker and was estranged from her husband. Earlier that night, she'd been seen looking for money to pay for a room in a lodging house. She depended on hands out and casual prostitution to survive. She was last seen clearly drunk. Walking the streets at night after heavy drinking would have made her an easy target. So the murders continued? By November the 9th, 1888, there had been four other murders with two occurring during the same night. The victims were Annie Chapman, Chapman Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. All of the five murders were at night, on or close to a weekend, either at the end of the month or a week or so after the end of, the, uh, end of a month. How is it known that all five murders were committed by the same person? The London Metropolitan Police worked only on that theory and announced that, that there was only one murderer. Who was the next victim? Annie Chapman's body was discovered at just before 6am on September the 8th, 1888, lying on the ground near a doorway in a backyard. At around 5.30am, voices were heard in the backyard, followed by the sound of something falling against a fence. Her throat had been cut and the body had been mutilated. Annie Chapman was married and the mother of three children, but was estranged from her husband. Both were heavy drinkers. She may have been a widow by then due to her husband's alcoholism. She was involved in casual prostitution and lived in lodging houses. Annie Chapman was 47 at the time of her death. So the murders with the similarities of prostitution and heavy drinking continued. Yes, and throats being cut. The murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes occurred within minutes of each other on the night of September the 29th, 1888. Elizabeth Stride's body wasn't mutilated while the body of Catherine Eddowes was. There is a theory that the murder had been interrupted and had moved on to a second victim. Catherine Eddowes' body was found in the city of London, resulting in a second police force being involved and more complication. 
Why did they think that the murder had been interrupted? Because of the lack of mutilation, also Elizabeth Stride's body had been found with blood still flowing from the wound in the neck. Elizabeth Stride was seen by an eyewitness being attacked and thrown to the ground at around 12.45 a.m. Her body was found in a small, narrow yard between buildings. Elizabeth Stride was a widow with no children who had been born in Sweden. She appeared in court numerous times of being drunk and disorderly. Why didn't the eyewitness intervene? What was the description of Stride's attacker? The eyewitness thought it was a domestic dispute and didn't want to get involved. The description was a, ma- was a man about five foot five inches tall, aged around 30 with dark hair, a fair complexion and a small brown moustache. He had a full face, broad shoulders and appeared to be slightly intoxicated. In 2006, NEFIT, which is an electronic facial identification technique picture, was published by a Scotland Yard team based on 13 eyewitness statements from the five murders. The description was between the ages of 25 and 35, between five foot five inches and five foot seven inches tall with a stocky build. He was described as frighteningly normal. When and where in the city of London was Catherine Eddowes found? Between 1.35 and 1.45 a.m., about a mile or 1.6 kilometers away from Whitechapel. At 8.30 p.m. the evening before, Eddowes was found lying drunk in the street. She had been detained by police until sober enough to leave a police station at 1 a.m., just minutes before she was found dead. Catherine Eddowes was a mother of three children from her first common-law husband. She was 47 at the time of her death. Thankfully, we are at the last of the five similar murders. Who was the fifth victim? Mary Jane Kelly, who was believed to have been married and widowed with no children. She had the nickname Dark Mary, owing to her aggressive behaviour when drunk. Her heavy, heavily mutilated body was found in her room at number 13 Miller's Court, Whitechapel, on the morning of November the 9th, 1888. Mary Jane Kelly was last seen at 11.45 p.m. the night before her death in Miller's Court with a short, stout man with a blotchy face who looked to be in his 30s. Mary Jane Kelly was just 25 at the time of her death. No family member could be found to attend her funeral. Was that the end of the murders? The general belief seems to be that the Jack the Ripper murders ended with Mary Jane Kelly, but including the five murders we have described, there were 11 murders from April the 3rd, 1888 to February the 13th, 1891 in the Whitechapel area. There may have been more murders by the same killer, but is there a criminal profile of the person called Jack the Ripper? Yes, criminal profiling didn't really start until the 1970s after pioneering work by Howard Teton and Patrick Mullaney at the FBI. The FBI now has five behavioral analysis units. These provide investigative and operation support for crime solving. But we'll have to continue with the profile of Jack the Ripper and getting into H.H. Holmes after this short break. And you're listening to Too Good to Be True with Justina Marsh and Pete Marsh on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net.
Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simo-TV plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like X-Zone, Sci-Fi, and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world. Interactive online network and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. Modern Esoteric, Beyond Our Senses by Brad Olson, consummates the lifeology story about where humanity originates. It is the lost continents, the primitive wisdom, the mythos of creation, and the rethinking of ancient history as we are taught in academia. There is much more to the story than what we have been told. As this is the first book in the Esoteric series, Modern Esoteric starts at the beginning of time and accelerates up to this modern age. Future Esoteric is book two in the series and takes a forward-looking position ahead of today with an open and honest examination of the ET issue and various unexplained phenomena. To discover the writings of author Brad Olson, visit www.bradolson.com. That's www.bradolson.com. Welcome back to Too Good to Be True. And before the break, we were just about to get into the criminal profile of the person called Jack the Ripper. In a 2011 London Daily Mail article, it was revealed that the FBI had created a criminal profile for Jack the Ripper. And I quote, Jack the Ripper's horrific killing spree was probed by FBI experts in the 1980s, a new document has revealed. But even agents from the U.S. elite crime-fighting unit could not solve the mystery of the Ripper's identity that has stumped both amateur and professional sleuths for more than a century. A secret FBI dossier, which has just been declassified and made public, reveals how one of its acclaimed special agents and a pioneer of criminal profiling attempted in vain to unmask the serial killer. Who was the acclaimed special agent? John Douglas, who produced the profile in 1988. I will continue with the Daily Mail article. Special Agent Douglas wrote, 
We would look for someone below or above average in height and or weight, may have problems with speech, scarred complexion, physical illness, or injury. We would not expect this type of offender to be married. If he was married in the past, it would have been to someone older than himself, and the marriage would have been for a short duration. He is not adept in meeting people socially, and the major extent of his heterosexual relationships would be with prostitutes. He continues, This offender does not look out of the ordinary. However, the clothing he wears at the time of the assaults is not his everyday dress. He wants to project to unsuspecting female prostitutes that he has money. He comes from a family where he was raised by a domineering mother and weak passive father. In all likelihood, his mother drank heavily and enjoyed the company of many men. As a result, he failed to receive consistent care and contact with stable adult role models. Mr. Douglas notes that this unstable family background resulted in the killer internalizing his anger from his younger years, becoming an introvert, and venting his frustration through violent destructive acts, end quote. I think we have to state that a profile is not intended as an excuse for a criminal behavior, but as the result of analysis of available information to assist with a criminal investigation. Is that the end of the profile? There is more from the article. He, Special Agent Douglas, suggests that the criminal would seek work in the profession where he could be alone and explore his disturbing fantasies, imagining him as a butcher or mortician's assistant. The FBI agent writes, he would be perceived as being quiet, a loner, shy, slightly withdrawn, obedient, and neat and orderly in appearance and when working. He drinks in the local pubs, and after a few spirits, he becomes more relaxed and finds it easier to engage in conversation. He lives or works in the Whitechapel area. The article concludes as follows. Mr. Douglas concludes in his report, he would not be visibly shaken or upset if directly accused of the homicides. Jack the Ripper believed the homicides were justified, and he was only removing perishable items who were like garbage, end quote. Let's move on to H.H. Holmes, known as America's, America's first serial killer. Here is a brief synopsis of his life from the biography website. Quote, Herman Webster Mudgett, better known as H.H. Holmes, May the 16th, 1861 to May the 7th, 1896, was a con artist and bigamist who was one of America's first serial killers. Sometimes referred to as the Beast of Chicago, Holmes is believed to have killed somewhere between 20 and 200 people. He killed many of his victims in a specially constructed home, which was later nicknamed the Murder Castle. Apprehended in 1894, he was hanged for his crime, crimes two years later, unquote. You mentioned in the week that H.H. Holmes had been suspected as being Jack the Ripper. I looked at the Scotland Yard EFIP picture of Jack the Ripper and of the contemporary pictures of H.H. Holmes, and although there are similarities, I don't think they are the same person. There is a 2017 television series, American Ripper, on that subject, but what led up to H.H. Holmes being sentenced to death? The event surrounded the World's Fair in Chicago in 1893. Here's a quote from the website Crime Museum. Quote, in 1893, Chicago was given the honor of hosting the World's Fair, a cultural and social event to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Columbus's discovery of America. The event was scheduled from May to October and attracted millions of people from all over the world. When Holmes heard the World's, the World's Fair was coming to Chicago, he looked, at it, he looked at it as an opportunity. He knew many visitors would be searching for lodgings near the fair 
I believe many of them would be women who he could easily seduce into staying at the hotel. After being lured into the hotel, many of these out-of-town visitors would never be seen again, unquote. So Holmes was a hotel owner who murdered his hotel guests? Yes, but owning a hotel was not his career. Holmes had moved to Chicago to practice as a pharmacist. Here's another quote from the website Crime Museum. Quote, in 1884, Holmes passed his medical exams, and in 1885, he moved to Chicago, where he, where he got a job working as a, at a pharmacy under the alias Dr. Henry H. Holmes. When the owner of the drugstore passed away, he left his wife to take over the responsibilities of the store. However, Holmes convinced the widow to let him buy the store. The widow soon went missing, was never seen again. Holmes claimed that she moved to California, but this could never be verified. After Holmes had become the owner of the drugstore, he purchased an empty lot across the street. He designed and built a three-story hotel, which, which the neighborhood called the Castle. During its 1889 construction, Holmes hired and fired several construction crews so that no one would have a clear idea of what he was doing. He was designing a murder castle. After construction was complete in 1891, Holmes placed ads in newspapers offering jobs for young women and advertised the castle as a place of lodging. He also placed ads presenting himself as a wealthy man looking for a wife, unquote. What was the real name of the murder castle? It may have been called the World's Fair Hotel. Here's another, qu here's another quote from the Crime Museum website. Quote, All of Holmes' employees, hotel guests, fiancés and wives were required to have life insurance policies. Holmes paid the premiums as long as they listed him as a beneficiary. Most of his fiancés and wives would suddenly disappear, as did many of his employees and guests. People in the neighborhood eventually reported that they saw many women enter the castle, but would never see them exit, unquote. Having to have a life insurance policy to stay at the hotel with the owner being the beneficiary should have been a giant red flag. This is starting to sound really unbelievable. Fiances and wives were presumably among the victims. Tricking someone into marriage or the promise of marriage and then murdering them is indescribably evil. But how did the women just disappear? The hotel was designed by Holmes for the purpose of murder. Here, here's another quote from the same website. Quote, the first floor of the castle had several stores. The two upper levels contained Holmes' office in over 100 rooms and were used as living quarters. Some of these rooms were soundproof and contained gas lines so that Holmes could asphyxiate his guests when he felt like it. Throughout the building, there were trapdoors, peepholes, stairways that led nowhere and chutes that led into the basement. The basement was designed as Holmes' own lab. It had a dissecting table, stretching rack, and crematory. Sometimes he would send the bodies down the chute, dissect them, strip them of the flesh, and sell them as human skeleton models to medical schools. In other cases, he would choose to cremate or place the bodies into pits of acids." Unquote. I don't think that works to describe the evil and cruelty contained in that building. How many victims were there? Nobody knows. Holmes was supposed to have murdered anywhere between 200 and two, uh, sorry, 20 and 200 people. Holmes actually confessed to 27 murders, including that of his assistant, Benjamin Pitizel, and two of his daughters. He was paid $7,500 or $220,000 in today's value by a newspaper for his confession, which apparently wasn't accurate. Who was his assistant, Benjamin Pitizel? 
He was a carpenter with a criminal past and a close friend of Holmes. Holmes and Pitazar had conspired to fake Pitazar's death as part of a $10,000 insurance scam to benefit Pitazar's wife, Holmes, and a lawyer who assisted in the scam. $10,000 would be worth almost $300,000 today. Pitazar was to assume the false identity of an inventor and to be killed and disfigured in a laboratory explosion. Cadaver to be provided by Holmes would provide the remains of the victim of the accident. This was all to occur in Philadelphia. This was after the World's Fair closed, resulting in few guests for the hotel. Was the scam successful? The scammers planned in the occur. Holmes killed Pitazel on September the 4th, 1894, by setting on fire with benzene. The insurance money was collected, and then Holmes traveled with three of the five Pitazel children. Pitazel's widow was led to believe that they would be in London under the care of a Minnie Williams. They weren't in London. Minnie Williams was already dead, killed at the murder castle. What happened to the children? We know that Holmes confessed to the murder of the two daughters. Later in July of 1895 in Toronto, Canada, the bodies of Alice and Nellie Pitazel were found under a cellar of a house. They were believed to have been locked in a trunk and then suffocated by gas. Their younger brother Howard is thought to have been murdered by Holmes in another location. Alice was 13 or 14, Nellie was 9 or 10, and Howard was 8 at the time of their deaths. So Holmes was arrested after the body of Benjamin Pitazel was found? Yes, Holmes was apprehended in November of 1894 and convicted of the murder of Benjamin Pitazel. What happened to the murder castle? In July of 1895, after the discovery of Alice and Nellie Pitazel's bodies, the Chicago police had searched the building and found insufficient evidence for additional charges. In August of 1895, the building was gutted by explosions and fire after two men were seen entering the building at night. The building was demolished in 1938. The site is now occupied by a United States Post Office. But is there an, uh, is there an available criminal profile for H.H. Holmes? Yes, there is. There is a criminal profile for H.H. Holmes, but we'll have to get into this criminal profile after the short break. And you're listening to Too Good to Be True with Justina Marsh and Pete Marsh on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Broadcast studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, to the world and beyond. You're watching the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. ABS Media Day. I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, 
research, and financing care, I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Rob McConnell here, presenting an overview for Nicholas Paul Jinnick's, author of a fascinating book, Amen. It presents facts revealed by Egyptologists, facts that enable us to understand why Amen is the beginning of creation of God. It provides recommendations for religious leaders of the major religions to unify their beliefs and teach the word of God, love one another. Amen informs people how mankind conceived God. It was the Egyptians that developed the concepts of a soul, a hereafter, and son of God, and finally, After the worship of many gods, they conceived the belief in one universal God, the maker of all there is. For more information, visit www.futureofgodamen.com. That's www.futureofgodamen.com. Welcome back to Too Good to Be True. And before the break, we were discussing H.H. Holmes and the criminal profile. There is a profile created by criminal profiler Dr. Clarissa Cole from August 2016 in the America's Most Haunted website. And I quote, There are certain risk factors that can be seen in people who have acted violently and might be expected to do so in the future. In Holmes' case, he scored on almost all of them. There was violence in his life before the murders. His father beat him. He had trouble with relationships, no real friends, a broken first marriage. He was fired from jobs. He had traumatic experiences and violent attitudes towards others, as corroborated in his later testimony that he hated his parents, wishing them dead, and that he experimented on live animals for fun. This certainly set up homes for a life that was unlikely to be easy or charmed. Though he was certainly very smart, he wasn't taught the basics of how to love another person, not by his family or friends or anyone else. He was groomed to be cold, calculating, and reserved about his desires, prominent family who guarded their reputation. In some ways, it was the perfect storm. Add to this fact that Holmes was also born a psychopath, and the stage was set for the cataclysmic events that he put into motion. 
As an experienced forensic psychologist who has come into contact with hundreds of inmates and read evaluations of thousands more, I can count the others I've seen that are the likes of H.H. Holmes on one hand. As much as he was terrible, he was unique in that he was psychopathic, extremely intelligent, charismatic enough to fool most others, creative, and prolific. This is rarely, if ever, seen in real life. My only conclusion is that people like Holmes are they either exceedingly rare or simply never get caught, end quote. Monsters like Holmes not getting caught is a scary thought. I think it's time for the first question. Why is there so much fascination with serial killers? Because serial killers basically commit acts that are very socially unacceptable and people become very interested in this since they don't think, act, nor fit into society like normal people do. So again, it goes back to the interest in people different from themselves. And also there's this interest of studying serial killers to try and track them and prevent them from happening from a younger age so that very heinous acts do not occur. Why did the serial killer Jack the Ripper choose that name for himself? Was it aimed at gaining the maximum publicity? Yes, he wanted more attention. Without that name, would the five murders from 1888 have been forgotten about? Probably not forgotten about, but not as popular. So in general, when there is a name given to a serial killer that's very uncommon, it's most likely remembered compared to other killings, which just use the person's regular name and there's no nickname associated with it. Did the real killer write the Dear Boss and From Hell letters as well as the saucy Jackie postcard? Some of them, yes. Which ones did he write? Everything except the postcard. Did the real killer write any other letters or postcards? In general, yes, but not ones that were ever meant to be sent. So there were, you could call them drafts made before the ones were sent. Did the same killer murder Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly? What can be said is that they are connected in a way, but it can't be confirmed if it was the exact same killer, but they were connected in a way. Did that killer murder any other than some than some of those five women? Yes. Why did the killer choose prostitutes who were heavy drinkers as victims? Because they related to his early life, so he related to what he was around, which included prostitution and drinking. I should have asked, for the five murders, were there more than one murderer? Yes. I wasn't expecting that answer. Was the killer, as described by the eyewitnesses to the attack on Elizabeth Stride, uh, sorry, the eyewitness to the attack on Elizabeth Stride, about five foot five inches tall, aged around 30 with dark hair, a fair complexion and a small brown moustache? Yes. Did uh, a killer fit the description of being between the ages of 25 and 35, between five foot five inches and five foot seven inches tall with a stocky build? Yes. Was the killer or killers ever interviewed by the police as part of their inquiries? Yes. Was that one of them or both of them? Both. Did one of the killers resemble the EFIT picture created by the Scotland Yard team in 2006? Vaguely, yes. So not an exact replicate, but very similar features. Was the description one of the killers being frighteningly normal, accurate? Yes. Did the two killers look similar enough to be mistaken for the same person? 
Yes, they were very similar in their features, and that's not what made it so complicated, is that each killing was semi-different in the aspects that they were connected, but not completely the same, which made the whole case files and investigation more difficult. Was it on the life paths of any of Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, or Mary Jane Kelly to be violently murdered? Not exactly. So nobody really... It's difficult because on a life path, someone could technically decide to be murdered as their fate, but the violent acts aren't always included. So yes, the murder might be included on the life path, but the violence and hate and disgusting acts associated, nobody would ever really write into their path since it's a very disgusting thing and very not positive. Why were the five murders on or close to weekend, either at the end of a month or a week or so after the end of the month? Because the murderer was busy during the other times. What can we learn from the lives of Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, or Mary Jane Kelly? That they should not be known for their murders, but instead for who they are. So it's very prominent that killings are classified by who killed them. So when these unknown these unknowns occur, it's good to use the real names. And even when the killer is known, it's good to use the names. Since even though their lives were to say the least, complicated. They were still humans, and they did not deserve to die in the way they did. So even if people make very unfortunate life decisions, nobody deserves to get murdered, especially in very violent, disgusting ways. So these women all had family and friends, and that needs to be remembered. Are all of the five women at peace now? Yes. Why was the mutilation of Mary Jane's Kelly body so extensive was it because there had been the privacy of a room giving less chance to the killer getting caught? Yes, and it was more personal, so the killer more related to her than the others. Based on the FBI profile, did the killer have problems with speech, a scarred complexion, a physical illness, or an injury? So one of the killers had more of an antisocial personality, so there may have been some speech issues with anxiety and speaking in public. And with regards to any injuries or physical issues... The other killer did not have anything associated with that. Were either of the killers married? At one time, one of the killers was, yes. Were either of the killers not adept in meeting people socially? Yes, one of them was very, very antisocial and awkward, which could be the description. Why was one of the killers everyday why was one of the killers everyday dress not what he wore when involved in the murders? Because it was more of a living a double life. So there was this, quote, normal life, and then the killings. So it was a very separate situation in his mind where it separated into normal every day and then the killings. Was that true for the other killer? No, the other killer more combined the two. Was either of the killers from a family where he was raised by a domineering mother and a weak, passive father? That could be said in a way where the mother was the one more in charge and the one in charge of the upbringing and the father really wasn't around. Did either of the killer's mothers drink heavily and enjoy the company of many men? Yes. So that's either or both? One of them. Did either of the killers fail to receive consistent care and contact with stable adult role models? Both of them struggled with that. Did one of the killer's family background result in the killer internalizing his anger from his younger years, becoming an introvert and venting his frustration through violent destructive acts? So technically, both of them could be described as that. 
So they would be described as basically being psychopaths or sociopaths, now called antisocial personality disorder. So both of them struggled with these characteristics, which led to very internalized feelings and very not normal feelings, where the feelings of anger was overwhelming. Did either of the killers have a profession in which they could be alone and explore their disturbing fantasies? The second killer, who combined both the killings and his personal life, could be described like that. Could either of the killers be perceived as being quiet, alone, or shy, slightly withdrawn, obedient, and neat and orderly in appearance when working? Yes, the first killer that was described earlier could be described as this. Did either of the killers drink in local pubs and after a few spirits would become more relaxed and find it easier to engage in conversation? No. Did either of the killers live or work in the Whitechapel area? Yes, the first killer. Would either of the killers not be visibly shaken or upset if directly accused of the homicides? Both of them are very good at lying and putting up a front. Did the killer believe that the homicides were justified and were only removing worthless individuals? Yes, both of them. Will the real identity of the killers ever be revealed? That really depends on the future, which can't be said exactly what will be happening. But what can be said is that different criminal investigations, working with evidence, working with DNA evidence, is coming a long way and already has came a long way. So if these continue to be investigated, there's always a good chance that the real killers will be found. The only issue is as time goes by, it's obviously harder and harder to investigate. So that's why it's so important for investigations to begin right away so evidence can be found and suspects can be interviewed. Since when cases are long unsolved, it makes it a lot more difficult. But we'll have to continue with the questions and the psychic insight after this short break. And you're listening to Too Good to Be True with Justina Marsh and Pete Marsh on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simo TV, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simo TV. Simo TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like X-Zone, sci-fi, and horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world. Interactive online network and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. The new nonfiction book, Razor of Madness, is similar to cult movies like Clockwork Orange, Dragon's Tattoo, or The Other Side of Hell. Wayne Morin Jr. and Thomas Lee Howe will expose widespread and systematic deficiencies in this thought-provoking tell-all novel. 
Mind control rages among scholars in law schools. Human rights are ignored while thought reform and mental manipulation are accepted practices used as behavior modification. Dr. Louis Jolion West comes to mind. Media and public scrutiny shows that United States mental hospitals are in fact destructive murder industries. Razor of Madness Expose Novel details this epidemic through an in-depth professional and personal investigation. For decades, there has been a revolving door policy that still releases killers and pedophiles back into society. The maestro of mind control continues to haunt America to this very day. Razor of Madness is available in paperback or as a downloadable ebook at Amazon.com. I'm William S. Peckham. If you enjoy a good mystery with a touch of the paranormal, then you'll love my novel, From Out of the Woodwork. It's the story of a young Toronto contractor, Sean Kennedy, who buys derelict homes, guts them, and turns them into multifamily dwellings, slums just waiting to happen. When Sean buys 29 Livery Lane, the house fights back. Former owners unexpectedly come out of the woodwork as he starts the destruction. The apparitions come to him when he touches old books, reads hidden letters, rummages through old boxes, finds a locket or reads a discovered manuscript of a murder mystery. From Out of the Woodwork will take you from 1899 to the horror of the World Trade Center, September 11, 2001. Check out From Out of the Woodwork on my website, www.williamspeckham.com. Welcome back to Too Good to Be True. And before the break, we're going through the questions and the psychic insight about Jack the Ripper and H.H. Holmes. So, Dad, can you please continue on the questions? Did the killers know each other? Yes, they did know each other. Were they aware of each other's activities? Yes, and that's something that is very complicated about serial killers and killers is that they're very solitary about their actions but they are also usually aware of other killings and other people in the area. So it's kind of the sixth sense they have about other killings and two serial killers don't really ever meet in person because they're aware of each other, but kind of leave each other alone. With no arrest made, what caused the killings to end? One killer got ill, the other killer met someone and moved away from the area. Now to change the subject to H.H. Holmes. Where did H.H. Holmes get the idea to build the infamous hotel? Basically just his imagination and as kind of a normal cover. In the drugstore where Holmes first worked in Chicago, did the owner die of natural causes? Yes. Did Holmes later murder the widow of the drugstore owner? She was killed with some help, yes, so she wasn't in the best condition, but he encouraged the death. Did Holmes pay any money out of his own pocket to buy the drugstore? Yes. Why did Holmes change his name from Herman Webster Mudgett? Because he didn't want to be associated with his family any longer. Why wouldn't Holmes' wives, fiancés and hotel guests become suspicious with life insurance policies being paid for by Holmes, provided he was the beneficiary? Because they're very naive, and that's not to be said in a disrespectful way. But the problem is that people don't really think the worst case scenario. So nobody really had this thought in their head they might be in danger and something suspicious was going on. So say, for example, let's say a normal person was engaged to someone. 
They wouldn't think taking out a life insurance policy was anything sketchy unless they had some type of feeling that the person was a bad person. But obviously, when you get close to someone, you want to think the best about them, not the worst. Why weren't the police involved when hotel guests would arrive and then never seem to leave? This is going to sound bad, but the police had other matters to deal with, so it wasn't at the top of the priority list. Along with the World's Fair going on, is, is that true? Correct. Why weren't the guests that disappeared reported as missing persons? Because at the time, the missing persons index or list was a lot different from today. So a lot of people were just assumed to have taken off or had some strange circumstances. So reporting missing people was a different process. So a lot of people went missing and it wasn't anything too suspicious. Why did so many women trust home sufficiently to become his wife or fiance? Because of his personality. So some serial killers or killers in general have this personality, which is very convincing, where the manipulation goes very deep. And they have this way with women, which convinces them that they are trustworthy and safe. However, they obviously were not trust, were not trusting or should not be trusting him, nor were they safe. Why did What did Holmes do with all the money he gained through insurance claims and other means from his murder victims? He spent some of it, and the other he basically hid. Was the description of the murder castle, murder castle accurate in that some rooms were soundproofed and contained gas lines, along with a dissecting table, stretching rack, and crematory in the basement? Yes. Did Holmes sell the skeletons of some of his victims to medical schools? Yes. How did Holmes keep his activity secret? Did he have associates that knew what was going on? No, he was just very sneaky, very planned, very manipulating, and very not the word intelligent, but more strategic about how he planned his murders. Holmes confessed to 27 murders, but approximately how many murders did he commit? Well, it can be said there were more than 27, so approximately 10 more than he said. Did Holmes murder his friend ben Benjamin Pitazel just for the insurance money? Yes. How could Holmes actually murder a close friend? Because with how his brain worked, nobody was really worth being a close friend. So even if it was a close friend, they were still just a ploy in his ultimate plan, which was murdering, fulfilling, then need to murder, and also money. How could Benjamin Pitazel's wife entrust Holmes with three of her children? Because they had no idea. So it's hard to really think about that someone might be a serial killer or killer. Nobody really had suspicions, but some people are more trusting than others. And at the time, there were no suspicions that H.H. Holmes was doing something strange. Why did Holmes murder Alice and Nellie Pitazel? Did they know what had happened to their father? Vaguely, yes, but it was also an opportunity to kill. Did he just kill for the fun of it? To fulfill his desire to kill, yes. Did Holmes murder Howard Pitazel? Yes. Why didn't the police in Chicago find evidence of murder in the murder castle? Wasn't it obvious that the building was equipped just for that purpose? Again, it was difficult because things were so different. So there was a lot of difference in collecting evidence, understanding the evidence, even studying the evidence of serial killers and how serial killers operate. So it was very hard when there was a situation where things are sketchy, but you don't have exact physical evidence. So you have some, but at the time, they didn't have the exact evidence of how he killed the people. So they understood where he killed them, the possibilities, but they needed to be more for them to connect the dots. 
So there was no smoking gun. Correct. Why did the two persons destroy the murder castle? Had they lost loved ones? They could be called loved ones, yes. It's a profile created by Dr. Clarissa Cole from the August of 2016, accurate in its description of homes. Yes, for the most part, yes. What happens when truly evil individuals pass away? Do they have to relive their crimes and then become rehabilitated, or are they just lost souls? So if a soul is truly under God, then no, they would not be a lost soul. However, there is karma. So there would be some type of repayment of that karma. And there also would be lessons that would have to be learned. So if the person is truly has some type of light within their soul, then yes, they could be rehabilitated in a way. But if they're truly lost and there's no light left, it becomes a much more difficult situation. Do truly evil individuals have to pay back karma in future lives, such as becoming murder victims themselves? In some cases, yes, but it is not necessarily necessarily that what they did to someone is going to happen back to them. It might happen in a different way. Were any of Jack the Ripper's or H.H. Holmes' murder victims paying back karma in their, own, in their then lifetimes? Everyone pays back karma in a way, so that could be said for anybody. But again, karma is very complicated, so it can't be said that someone will be murdered just because karma needs to be repaid. What can we learn from the lives of the murder victims? Again, that their names need to be known. So anyone who's murdered, it's not about the killer, but it's about the victims. So these killers become famous based on their victims when it shouldn't be that way. Instead, it should be the victims that are famous and their names are well known. And also the biggest takeaway is that anybody, not only women, but anybody should be safe in their surroundings. So trust is easily gained in some situations and some people are very manipulating. So if any woman or man out there are in a situation that is harmful in any way, manipulating, abusive, even if there's a sketchy feeling, always follow your gut instinct and make sure you get help and contact the right authorities. So the biggest takeaway is to follow your gut instinct and even to be safe in general, since there are serial killers, there are killers. And you never know when one is going to strike, which sounds scary, but there are protective different measures you can take, such as making sure that someone always knows where you are, making sure you don't put yourself in negative or bad situations and always being aware of your surroundings. That was the last answer. Is the possibility that the truth behind the Jack the Ripper murders will be revealed one day too good to be true? That depends on what you are prepared to believe. That was a complete shock, uh, but apparently there needs to be two murderers identified to finally solve the Jack the Ripper murders. That might be an explanation why the crimes have been so difficult to solve. I found H.H. Holmes to be unbelievable. Mark Twain said, truth is stranger than fiction, but it is because fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities. Truth isn't. I'm not going to argue with Mark Twain or anyone else. I hope you get a good night's sleep after this episode. You didn't like the content, did you? Not at all. And uh, at that point, I think I need to give a shout out to the listener for the suggestion of uh, H.H. Holmes. We extended it to Jack the Ripper. I grew up with all the stories. It was infamous where I grew up. I'm not sure it was so um, such a well-known uh, story outside uh, this side of the Atlantic but uh, um, 
it was very very interesting but uh, i wouldn't say it was it was a it was a valuable experience i wouldn't say it was a likable experience going through all of that well, I think that there is this huge interest in true crime. And as we mentioned earlier, is that I've always been interested in true crime and serial killers. And I listen to a lot of true crime cases. And it seems to be that there's this interest in studying them because they are different individuals. Psychologically, there's obviously something I would say off with them. But I think the biggest takeaway from this episode and even true crime in general is that you need to be safe. So it doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man, whoever you are, you need to make sure you don't put yourself in a situation that potentially could be dangerous. So not leaving at night, telling people where you are, you know, taking the proper precautions, I think is very important. And it's interesting too, that they say that there are many different serial killers out there and they don't know who they are. So it's always important, you know, to be aware of your surroundings, you know, maybe not put in those headphones, play the loud music, Maybe instead, you know, take out those headphones, be aware, and just to be, you know, not on guard, but just be aware. Yes, I think that's uh, sound advice, and hopefully next time we'll have a more cheerful subject. Yes, and if any listeners have suggestions for any subjects, you can go to our website, toogoodtobetrue.net, or our Facebook page at Too Good To Be True. And as always, thank you to all the listeners, and stay tuned for next week's show. Modern Esoteric, Beyond Our Senses by Brad Olson, consummates the lifeology story about where humanity originates. It is the lost continents, the primitive wisdom, the mythos of creation, and the rethinking of ancient history as we are taught in academia. There is much more to the story than what we have been told. As this is the first book in the Esoteric series, Modern Esoteric starts at the beginning of time and accelerates up to this modern age. Future Esoteric is book two in the series and takes a forward-looking position ahead of today with an open and honest examination of the ET issue and various unexplained phenomena. To discover the writings of author Brad Olson, visit www.bradolson.com. That's www.bradolson.com. Are you or is someone you know struggling with addictions, depression, anxiety, relationships, low self-esteem, lack of confidence, grief, success, and prosperity? Do you know that your subconscious belief plays a big role in the outcome of your hard work? We can help you permanently change the beliefs that may be the reason for your struggles and failures. We care about getting you the return on your investment and the results you are looking for. We can help you be free of the limitations of your past and in realizing your highest potential. We work with people by phone and Skype. For more information, visit us at www.ritasoman.com. That's www.ritasoman.com.
Do you think you have energy problems in your home? Do you feel better when you're away than when you're home? Joey Korn is a global leader in the world of dowsing who specializes in personal energy clearing and space clearing. He can help you create an ideal energy environment in your home no matter where you live in the world. Learn about his remote spiritual house cleaning services and much more at www.dowsers.com. You can get Joey's book, Dowsing, A Path to Enlightenment, as well as other dowsing books and tools, Kabbalah books, and Walter Russell books. Joey's work is really amazing. Go to dowsers.com right now. That's D-O-W-S-E-R-S dot com or call 1-877-DOWSING. That's 1-877-369-7464.